God, though, that we uh, were able to go through this and we have uh, the Word of God to uh, hold dear to, hold tight to, and to learn from. And I believe that God's got some things for us to learn from this morning. Uh, today, <clears throat> we're going to be looking and starting chapter number two. We're going to be focusing in verses one through six. Uh, that If you don't have a booklet, make sure you grab one from the back. It's a new booklet for, for this week and potentially next as well. But the first six verses of chapter number two is another test of fellowship, another test of knowing God, walking with God, um, and it is the test of obedience. There's a little children's song that goes, O-B-E-D-I-E, he knows it, right? I-E-N-C-E, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe, right? Everybody, no? Okay, so only me and Peter know it, but it's a great little song. And as you can tell, I did not sign up in the back to sing specials, all right? But if you could sing better than that, you can, you can even sing that song if you want to. But um, obedience is the way to show that we do believe the gospel. Uh, we act on our faith in obedience, our response to the gospel call, to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is faithful obedience and trusting him. It's obeying the gospel call. But even further in our life, besides salvation, going into sanctification uh, and, and fellowship, as John has been talking about and discussing so far, is it is continued obedience. It is not near enough to just obey the Lord at salvation, but we must obey him every single day in sanctification. If you desire to grow closer to God, it's going to be because you obey his word. And the more that we obey his word, the more we grow in a hunger and a thirst for it, and the more we realize that this is working something inside of us that produces fruit outside as well as inside of us. It is what God has designed and called us to do. He has called us to obedience. Now, I want to begin here, starting in verse number one. He says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm just going to read those two verses because they go hand in hand together. They build upon one another, and they really deal with what we're going to focus on today, and that is Jesus, the advocate of sinners. If you are alive today, I want you to know this. You are a sinner, plain and simple. That's who we are, right? In our flesh, we are nothing but filthy, rotten, no good, sinful slime. That's it, right? And we're even worse than that. Right? As bad as we think our nature is, it's even worse than that. As bad as we could talk about our flesh, it's even worse than that still. And so we understand that we have this sin issue, but John is about to address that sin issue even further than what he's already done. But he begins this new chapter kind of shifting the way that he's talking to the audience here. And I think it's very appropriate to address. He says, my little children. Now, he's not writing this to his biological children. He's writing this to his spiritual children. He's writing this to those who are in Christ, to those who are believers. As we've talked about, this is not being written to those who don't know Christ in order for them to be saved, but it is a call of obedience and faith to be saved and to have assurance of salvation and even more so an assurance of our fellowship with the Lord, our tests of faith. Now, he says, my little children, and one, it, it certainly expresses John's seniority of age and position in the church. This is the same John who walked with the Lord, the same John who is called John the Beloved, the same John who is there with, with uh, James and, and, and Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration and going deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane as, as the Lord Jesus prays the night before. It is the same John 
who followed the Lord. It's the same John who got into a, a race running to the empty tomb and stopping right there to look in as Peter comes finally barreling down the hill and into the tomb. And we see this is the same John that was used to be an apostle to write uh, the Gospel of John as an eyewitness account, as well as these three letters, and as well as God would use to be the last living and eldest apostle. Uh, at this point in time, as John writes, when he would write Revelation, he was, there was no other apostles left. And so there were many first century um, believers, as well as early church fathers, who personally knew John, or walked with John, or had been taught by him. And what a privilege that is. This is someone who certainly is the elder statesman of the church at this point. Secondly, the phrase, my little children, shows John's pastoral heart. He has a tender pastoral heart. He, he has certainly addressed sin, and sin must certainly be addressed, but the shepherd of the church, or the under-shepherd rather, the, the one who is called to be the leader, the, the pastor of the church, uh, it has been said that they are to have two voices, one for driving away the wolves and one for drawing in the sheep. And here John is not using his voice to cast away or draw away or spook away the, the wolves, but rather to draw in the sheep and call them my little children. I think every parent probably has a little name or a nickname or an endearment for their child. But even just to call them son or daughter, they know that there's something special about that. They belong. There is a relationship there. And then we, lastly, we find that this expresses him as a, a spiritual father. Uh, he is in a spiritual father-like relationship with the reader. And I have down here, each one of us must have someone that is pouring into our lives and someone that we are pouring our lives into. John had the Lord Jesus who poured his life into John. John then in turn took his life and poured it into others, countless others. You and I, no matter what stage of life you are in, should have someone that is pouring into your life the truth of God's word, uh, how to walk in closer fellowship and relationship through God's word. And as well, you and I should then not just be so full that we're constantly running over, but tip ourselves out into the lives of others. Right? We think about this. Uh, we have many around us who have not walked with the Lord uh, for as long as we have or have not had the privilege to know God in the way that we have and, and were, they're much younger in the faith or even younger physically speaking. So what do we do? Do we hold up all of our knowledge for ourselves to see how much we can hold on to? No, we are like sponges, aren't we? We're like sponges. A sponge is not just meant to gather up the water, but it's meant to be wrung out to pour out, right? It's used for other purposes besides just gathering it all up. We are called to pour ourselves into others as John does. John is pouring in uh, the truth of God's word, and you and I should be as well. And we should be able to have someone in our church, someone in our life or family that we would look at and we would say to them, spiritually speaking, my little children. This also shows that we're bearing fruit in our lives as well. John lived a fruitful life. It is a fruitful life that comes from a close fellowship with the Lord. Not just because he walked physically with God, but because he had a spiritual walk with God. John spent more years without physically walking with Jesus than he did physically walking with him. You and I have never physically walked with the Lord Jesus, but we walk daily through the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we have a close, deep-knit uh, fellowship and relationship with him. Now, this is also a purposeful address. The reason why he's writing and giving this to his little children, giving these to his spiritual offspring, if you will. He says, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. That ye sin not. The purpose is that you would not sin. 
if we look and understand contextually, John had just finished explaining that all believers are called to walk in the light of who God is. He had just said, um, walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in the light because God is light. There's no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship and we walk in darkness, we lie, we do not the truth. He says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, but we have fellowship with one another and we have fellowship through the Lord Jesus Christ and he cleanseth us. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. But then if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. What do we find? He has just dealt with this issue of self-deception, trying to deceive God, trying to deceive others, and not truly walking in the light. Those that walk in the light are not walking in continual, habitual sin. Do they stumble? Absolutely. Do they fall? Absolutely. Because as long as we have on this flesh, we will do so. Even John himself would do so. He understands this. But he's writing so that we would be conscious of our sin. We would have the right view of our sin. Because if we don't understand sin, how will we understand it when it's at our doorstep? Oftentimes, if it's knocking at our door and we don't know that it's sin right there at the door, we'll just open it up to see who it is. We might even just peek a little bit, but sin or the devil will kick open that door if we crack it open just a little bit. We are called to flee from sin, to mortify sin, to kill sin, uh, to be killing sin because it is out to kill us. Our flesh is not our friend. And there's two steps of walking in the light that John has dealt with already. Verse 9, a confession of sin. There must be a habitual confession of sin. We are not called and saved by Jesus so that way we can live in habitual sin, but rather so that way we would be habitually confessing our sin and restoring our fellowship with the Lord. It is continuous. Then secondly, the second part of walking in the light, confession of sin, but as well as forsaking of sin. In verse number one, I write these things unto you that ye sin not. What does it mean to not sin? It means to forsake it. It means sin knocks at your door and you say, go away, right? Or you treat it like the Mormons are Jehovah's Witnesses and you close the blinds and you, don't, you pretend no one's home, right? You just, right? It's knocking and no one's home, right? We don't want any, right? That's what we have to tell sin. We, sin will knock and it'll even do the fancy knocks to try to get us to let them in. Sin will tell us uh, there's danger inside. Come out here. Or, or sin will say, um, let me in for just a moment, right? I've got something new to show you, right? This will be worth your time, but it's not. What it will do is destroy us and drag us down. And the reason why sin is so powerful in the life of believers is because we still have one flesh, but as well as sin in our life does not bring us closer to God, but rather breaks that fellowship. It, it leaves uh, our walk with the Lord. And so we're to live lives that are continuously confessing our sin to God and continuously forsaking our sin so that we can enjoy true fellowship and what it means to truly walk in the light of who God is. Your Christian life is not over until you take your last breath out of this world. Your fight, your spiritual fight against sin will not be over until you leave this earth. And so we are ever forsaking and ever confessing our sin. Now, what is sin? The word is harmartia. It is uh, used in a different variety of ways, but it uses the words lawlessness, disobedience, missing the mark or standard. It is sin itself is just the opposite of righteousness, right? Or the lack of righteousness. So when we say that we are full of sin, it means we're not full of righteousness. When we say that we're full of sin or that our, uh, we have on sinful flesh, it means that it naturally does, that is lawless or disobedient. 
And so to think about sin, let me ask you about this. It would be, for example, these uh, speed limit signs, right? Might say 35 miles an hour. Is it okay to go 36? I mean, go ahead. it's not really that big of a deal, right? I mean, one mile an hour, no one can tell, right? It, it's probably just your speedometer even, right? But it's still missing the mark, isn't it? Right? Now, granted, if it's 35, you're probably going to find me at least doing 43 to try to be safe, right? Because that's what we do. And why do we do that? Those of us have got those lead foot, right? We do that because we think the same way about the speed limit as we do about our sin. We see what the sign says. We see what sin really is. But we want to see how far from breaking we can get without getting in trouble. We often treat sin the same way. And what sin is... Every single sin, whether it's one of the big ones that us Baptists love to preach and, and, and talk about, right? We love and we'll shout down all these sins of the world. But when we get to the sins of pride or jealousy or envy or greed or gossip or gluttony or um, any of our little issues that we might have that we pretend we don't, we don't like those anymore. You see, it's not about what's the big sin. I want you to know that every tiny, little, microscopic sin that we commit is huge in comparison to the righteousness of God. It is going against who God is. Your tiny, small, little sin or wicked thought or deed, you know what it really does is every little sin spits in the face of who God is. Every time that we go out of our way to sin, and by the way, those of us who are in Christ, let's not pretend that we don't go out of our way to sin. We know better. But we do it because we like it. It gives us power, control, or it satisfies our flesh for just a moment. And what does it do? It brings about destruction. It brings about remorse. and It takes away our fellowship. and It does nothing good for us. But yet we run to it because for just a moment it might feel good, sound good. It might satisfy me. But ultimately, sin never satisfies like Christ does. Sin never satisfies like the blood of Jesus. Sin never satisfies like the Word of God. It is here for a moment, it goes away, and then it leaves you going, what in the world happened? Sin must be viewed in the proper view. You must have the proper view of sin in the life of ourselves. Every believer must understand sin. Every believer must also understand what sins are the ones knocking at their door all the time. Because let's truly get down into business with our own hearts. The same sins that we go about and we commit and struggle with, they're the same ones that are always at the door knocking. It's not a new sin at the door. It's the same one. And really, we can trace these sins all the way back to the garden. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We'll get to that. Come back for Genesis. You might get to it in a month or two, right? You see, from the very beginning, our flesh wants what it wants. And our flesh does not want God. We often think that, well, you know, God's good, and God's love, and so in my flesh I might mess up, but I, I, I sought God. The, the Bible is clear. There's none that seek. There's none that do good. That's what sin really is. Sin always has its effects and conditions within our spiritual life. It is sin that breaks fellowship and a forsaking of that sin that brings then deeper fellowship with God. So where committing sin breaks fellowship, confessing sin brings fellowship. Where 
um, opening up the door to sin breaks fellowship. A, a continual forsaking of it brings it back together. Now, uh, John Stott writes here about the proper view, a biblical view uh, of sin. And, and to be honest, we must have a biblical view of everything. The way that you view the world should not be the way that the world views the world. The way that the believer views the world should be through the lens of Scripture, should be through the lens of the Holy Spirit, should be through the guiding of God's Word through God's Spirit in us. It should be a true biblical worldview. And I would say this, there are many today who claim to have a biblical worldview, but yet see things the exact same way that the world sees them. And if you have that today, I would say don't look the way that world goes. Turn and look through Scripture. Test the world with Scripture. Test, as John's going to say, try the spirits, right? See what's really happening. Get in God's Word. But John Stott writes about the view of sin, and he says, it is possible to be either too lenient or too severe towards sin. Too great a lenience almost encourages sin in the Christian life by stressing God's provision for the sinner. An exaggerated severity, on the other hand, deny, either denies the possibility of a Christian sinning or refuses him forgiveness and restoration if he falls. Both extreme positions are contradicted by John. <clears throat> and that's absolutely true. We find that there are those who say, uh, well, because of the blood of Jesus, I can, I can sin and it's not that bad. Or it, how many times do we say this in our mind? We never say it out loud for anyone else to hear. We say, I can get by with this sin because I know God will still love me and I can be forgiven. And let's be real, real. That's what we do, isn't it? We'll justify our sin because we know, well, I'll do it this one time and then I'll stop and, and I know God will forgive me, right? That's still not right, is it? No, that's a wrong view of sin and it's a wrong view of self and it's a wrong view of God. But you have on the other side, there are those who believe that um, because of who they are in the Lord and because of their view of sin, that it's so severe that they can never, if any sin happens, they lose salvation or they can't get salvation. They can't, uh, they're too far gone to be saved or they're too far gone for God's grace or you know, all of those things. And that's not the case either. Somewhere in the middle, what do we find? We find the truth of what John's just said. And that is, if any man sin, he's about to say we have an advocate. We have him who is our propitiation for our sins. And even backing up, that if we confess, if we confess that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from the inside out, we must have the right view of sin. Now he says then, if any man sin. Why? Because he knows that every man will sin. And every believer will come to a place where they do sin or do fall short or do stumble. Now, let's get with the real root of this whole couple of verses here. Our personal advocate. This is our hope today. This is our hopeful message. This is our everything this morning. This is what, um, this is what gives us encouragement, gives us grace. It is this truth. We have an advocate. The word here it says, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The word advocate is the word parakletos. Parakletos is, means one called alongside a mediator, an intercessor, or a helper. It is also used in reference of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. Um, I'll turn there real briefly. Um, so you hold your place. You can turn with me if you'd like to. It's up to you. It's a free country. You can do what you want. Right? <laughs> John 14. John, of course, is writing, and here he's penning the words of Jesus, who is teaching about the coming Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 15 says, Jesus speaking, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another 
comforter. That word comforter is the same as parakletos. That he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and ye and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world seeth uh, me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye also shall live. We find this comfort, this parakletos. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside us to draw us to salvation. It is the same Holy Spirit that comes alongside us as our mediator and intercessor that keeps us in our sanctification and leads us to our glorification. He who began a good work in you shall complete it. That means those who are saved, we believe, always shall be saved. And we do believe this as well. I, I believe firmly, according to the Scriptures, that those who are truly in the faith, those who are truly knowing the Lord, will not walk away. They may for a season, but it's the Holy Spirit who will draw them back ever to repentance, ever to confession and forsaken of sin, to bring us back in the fellowship of the Lord. And we have a God who is ever waiting for us to do just that and to always come unto Him. <clears throat> but if we sin, we have this one who comes alongside of us. We find as well, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, that the Holy Spirit acts as our intercessor in prayer, uh, praying these groans which cannot be uttered, praying for us in our time of need and our time of trouble, even praying when we're not praying. I believe in our prayer lives, the Holy Spirit spends more time in our prayer lives than we do. The Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, the righteous, who prays on our behalf as well to the Father, that they spend much more time in prayer than you and I ever do or could. But that gives us hope. Knowing that even though we sin, even though we fall, that we have this advocate. A commentator writes, Christ is the intercessor for us above, and in his absence here below, the Holy Ghost is the other intercessor in us. So it is Christ above us, the Holy Spirit in us, ever being one called alongside, mediating, intercessing, and helping for us. Every work of God that is shown here is a triune work of God. It is God the Father receiving our prayer, decreeing, and, and making things happen in our life. It is a, uh, Christ the, who is our intercessor at the right hand of the Father. As the accuser comes, that he is able to say, not guilty because of my shed blood and their position in me. And it is the Holy Spirit who uh, is ever praying on our behalf as a mediator and a help in our salvation and sanctification process. Now, the word parakletos also has the meaning of cruise. He, he writes, one who speaks on behalf of the accused. Not in the professional sense we use it today, but as a friend or patron who speaks up in favor of the accused. We often get this sort of uh, courtroom mentality or picture in our mind, which it, that's okay, it's acceptable to get that in your mind. Of, we have our uh, personal defendant here, right, who is uh, speaking to the judge and he's pleading our case. That is uh, Christ, Jesus the righteous, it is our Holy Spirit, it is our parakletos, it is Jesus, our intercessor. But we think as well it's much deeper than that. He's not just a, a hired uh, defender or, or attorney. He's our friend. He's the one that bought us. He's the one that walks alongside us. He's the one that gets us out of the sin. He's the one that intercesses in the sin. He's the one that brings us back into fellowship with the Father. Jesus acts as our personal defender. Our sin finds us guilty. The devil accuses us with charges that can't be dropped. Yet by the righteousness of our defender we are declared not guilty. Our defense, our defender is Jesus. Our only defense against sin is Jesus. It's not our power. It's not our strength. Our only advocate that we have is not ourself. 
And it's not even others. It is Jesus. So have hope today, dear Christian. You might stumble in sin. You might have stumbled this morning. You might be struggling this morning. And know that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is your advocate right now. Having that view in mind of our sin and our position in Christ does not free us to go and sin as we please, but rather drives us to thank God and to confess our sin so that we would have fellowship with that friend who is ever being our advocate and our help and our intercessor. Now, then he says, Jesus, the righteous, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is uh, uh, several titles here. Jesus, which means uh, a savior, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the appointed one. Uh, and then as well, the righteous. He is the righteous one. He is the righteous one for several reasons. One, because he is God. God is righteous. God is light and him is no darkness at all. Second, because of him, <clears throat> righteous acts of upholding uh, the law. It is his righteousness that upheld the law. You and I can't uphold it. You and I can't uh, fulfill the law. It is Christ alone that can. Third, his righteousness covers all believers uh, from the moment of salvation. From the moment of salvation, we are covered and cleansed by Christ. If we don't have this, we, we don't have anything. If we don't understand who Jesus is, if we don't have that righteousness, we're missing the whole boat. Just for sake of time today, um, I'm going try to try to go quickly uh, over to Hebrews and, and cover this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, discusses about Jesus being this righteous one on our behalf. Hebrews 7, verse 25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did once he, uh, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. We find that he is the righteous one. He is the one on our behalf that we can go to. He is our advocate ever making intercession for us. Then we have another title, that he is the propitiation. It says in verse number two, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation is used in several other places in Scripture in the New Testament that deals with the root of satisfying the wrath of God. I want you to know that before you were saved, the very wrath of God was very much against you. It is Jesus who bore our wrath uh, that we deserved. It is Jesus who faced the eternal wrath of the Father and in a, a time of darkness and separation where he who knew no sin became sin on that cross for us. It is a deep, deep issue that is often forgotten. This doctrine of understanding that it is Jesus' blood and sacrifice alone that satisfies God's wrath for sinners. And as he's going to address in just a second, it is for those alone who trust in him alone. Jesus' atoning death removes our sin and restores our fellowship. But when does that happen? Jesus' death and our trust in him, it secures it past, present, and future. Every sin in the world from the very first to the very last in your heart and mine, Jesus died for. Jesus, this propitiation here, we gives us the picture as well as the high priest who would go in on behalf of the people. Leviticus 16, 34, On that day, on the day of atonement, shall the priest make an atonement for you 
to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Once more, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 tells us, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Praise the Lord. Jesus offers a propitiation or an atonement. And it extends to the world, but His advocacy extends only to those who trust and walk in Him. How do we know? Because He says uh, He is the propitiation for our sins that are believers. Then He says it's not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does that mean all the world shall be saved? No. Rather, the wrath of God still abides upon them, but it is extended to the world. For whosoever shall call upon Him in the Lord shall be saved. There is this truth that God, uh, that what Christ has done, it is specifically, and of course, for those who will trust in Him, but it has been extended as an offer to the world, but the world will not come to Him. Those who are in darkness hate the light. They will not come to the light lest their deeds be reproved. What he says here, though, is this. Cruz writes about this. We might suggest that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world because His death was sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world but that His sacrifice does not become effective until people believe in Him. That is why there is not a universal salvation. That is why there is not a universal fatherhood of God. That is why if you are going to have Jesus as your advocate and not just your judge, it is going to be because you repent and confess your sin and put your trust in Him alone for salvation. Without faithful repentance, without true salvation, Jesus will not be your advocate, but rather will be your judge. And as the, uh, as the devil and as your sins are there and opened up and accused against you, if you are without Christ, if you don't know Him as Savior, He will not be your advocate and He will say, no, He's guilty. My blood did not cleanse Him. He is not washed. He is unclean. And that is why today ye must be born again. The message is still the same some 2,000 years later. Martin Luther writes, Thou too art a part of the world so that thine heart cannot deceive itself and think the Lord died for Peter and Paul, but not for me. There are many a lost soul today who says, I can't be saved. There's no way God could love me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I, I've, I've done too much to be forgiven. I just take my chances. That's a sad reality that many say today. And the reason why is because many of them feel as if that what Christ did for them on the cross was not really for them or that it does not extend out to them. The gospel call is to go to all. The gospel is for every person in this world, every living soul. It is both an invitation as well as a command to believe. That's why today we must preach the gospel with fervency and urgency, with passion, with clarity, not to mistake the gospel for works, not to mistake the gospel for self-help, or religion, or self-righteousness. But it is only through the righteousness of this righteous one that brings us into fellowship and keeps us into fellowship with the Father. Today, as we wrap up these two verses, I want to give encouragement to those who don't know Christ today. And there very well may be someone in here today who is not saved. I don't know that. And I can't take it for that for granted. Today, 
You have someone who desires to be your advocate if you would simply turn to him right now. He would go from being your judge, jury, and executioner to being your righteous advocate and would satisfy the wrath of God that is upon you. All you must do is believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Call unto him today and you shall be saved. And you go from no fellowship with God to having deep and close fellowship with the Father through Christ the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit who will come and take up residence in you to keep you saved and to walk with you in your sanctification process to keep you in the light and to those of you who are today who do know the lord there is also great encouragement here as you sin and when you sin because if you have it this morning you're much more spiritual than i am all right first of all second of all hold on because you're going to sin sometime today then right you might even sin before you leave church today i might make you mad enough you might want to cuss i don't know you think about this we will sin today, so what do we do? Where is our hope? Because the moment that we sin, what happens? Several things. One, our flesh tells us, well, you really did it this time. This is the last straw. God won't take you back no more. Or that old devil comes and whispers those lies to us and accuses us and says, nope, too far, too many times. You're done. You're not done until God says you're done. And what we have is this truth, that if we confess our sins, forsake our sins, that He is faithful and just and He will cleanse us and He will restore us. And that even in the middle of us sinning, we have a Holy Spirit who is screaming to us to flee, screaming to us to fight that sin. And we have our intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous, whoever is there for us, desiring that we would come unto Him. So today, no matter what your state is, we have this great truth. Christ is waiting with nail-scarred hands, with open arms, saying, come. Today, lost or saved, come to Jesus today. Experience the fellowship and the renewal and the joy that knowing Christ truly brings. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time once more. Thank you for the study of your word and for the truths found in it. Lord, that we have our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, and our intercessor inside of us as well. God, help us to be mindful of it, to be mindful of sin, to have the biblical view of sin, a biblical view of who you are and, and what you've done for us, and as well that we might not take those things for granted or abuse your grace, but God, that we might live uh, for you and by you and through you. I pray, God, that now you prepare our hearts for the service to come, that we might glorify you with everything that we say, do, sing, and that is preached today. We love you because you first loved us, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Also, to any men, um, I've got to say, we'll take a pause for the calls now. But any men that want to, uh, the room right next door here, Sanctuary's got a big green sign. We're going to have a prayer room here in just a few minutes if you want to come and pray before service.